This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thank you for joining the program today. Do not generate even for an instant the wish for the pleasures of cyclic existence. When you have day and night unceasingly the mind aspiring for liberation, then you have generated the determination to be free. However, if your determination to be free is not sustained by the pure altruistic intention, that's bodhicitta, it does not become the cause for the perfect bliss of unsurpassed enlightenment. Therefore, the intelligent generate the supreme thought of enlightenment. Now, when we got up to this point, we started considering how to develop the mind of bodhicitta, which led us to the two methods, six cause and one effect, and equalizing exchanging self for others. We covered the first method and have arrived at the first part of the second, that is, equalizing self for others, which is explained in nine points, as I said earlier. It is important to equalize oneself with others because usually we have this hierarchy with me at the top, my loved ones at the next level, my friends on the third level, and then come acquaintances, strangers, and lastly those who annoy us. We've talked about the first six of those nine points. That is, we all equally want happiness and don't want suffering. Then, one being's happiness is not more worthwhile than any other's. And the third point is that one being suffering is not more important to remove than any others. And the fourth point, all beings have been kind to me and so I should be prepared to help them in return. And the fifth point, although beings may have harmed me, they have benefited me much, much more. And the sixth point, seeing as I am under the sentence of death, it's useless to hold grudges. You can see that the first three or from the point of view of others, or, if you like, from a general point of view. The second three are from my point of view. The last three of the nine are from an ultimate point of view. But before we get on to that, let's consider our motivation as usual. Remember that we want to make any action we do as beneficial and effective as possible, so our motivation has to be as vast as possible. If I only want to benefit myself, not only is it selfish, but it's focused only on one person, so the result of the action will be small and probably not all that helpful. Then a motivation to benefit a select few, like, say, the people closest to me, also is often selfish and limited in scope. It's only when we widen our horizons to include all beings who, like ourselves, want happiness and don't want suffering that we can arrive at anything like a worthwhile motivation. When we take that, all beings, as our object and make our enlightenment our intent, then we are really making a difference to our outlook and so to our minds. 
So thinking about motivation, let's make it the liberation and enlightenment of all beings to fit in with the mind we are discussing in these programs, namely bodhicitta. Thank you. Now having gone through the first six points in the argument for equalizing oneself with others, we come to the last three. These, as I said previously, come from an ultimate point of view. The seventh point, then, is that neither friend, enemy, stranger, oneself or others are inherently existent. For instance, if I was inherently existent as myself, then others would necessarily be inherently existent as other and wouldn't be able to see themselves as myself. They would have to see me as self and themselves as other, which just sounds totally weird, doesn't it? Tipton Children makes the point that if friend, enemy, stranger, self and other existed inherently and independently, the Buddha would see them like that, but he doesn't. And because the Buddha has no obscurations on his mind stream, she says, what the Buddha sees is self and others being equal and friend and enemies and strangers being equal. From the perspective of a Buddha, if a Buddha is sitting there and one person on this side is punching him and one person on this side is massaging him, or one person on this side is criticizing him and tearing him down, and one person on this side is, is saying, I love you, from the point of a Buddha, he has equal care and compassion for both of them. Think about it. From a Buddha's point of view, a Buddha doesn't make any distinction between the person who helps and the person who harms, because a Buddha's compassion extends equally to everybody. That's nice, because it means we are never going to be left out. Well, yes, it might be nice to feel that you'll never be left out. But His Holiness the Dalai Lama makes a more compelling argument for why a Buddha doesn't discriminate as we do. This argument comes from the book The Wisdom of Forgiveness, which was published in 2004, when Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were still thorns in America's side. The author, Victor Chan, spent a lot of time living and traveling with His Holiness, and he describes his experiences as a kind of travelogue in the book. So, when I appears in the coming excerpt, it refers to Victor Chan. His Holiness first uses Saddam Hussein as an example. He says, I get the feeling in the eyes of President George W. Bush, Saddam is 100% negative, solidly negative. Only way is elimination. But really, reality is not like that. What is reality, I asked. I think two levels. In conventional level, Saddam Hussein not 100% wicked from birth, not something unchangingly bad. The Dalai Lama's hands circled each other, shaping an invisible sphere. That wickedness comes from many other factors, not only from him, therefore not independent. It is dependent on many other factors, including Americans themselves. During the Gulf Wars, everybody blamed Saddam Hussein, that I felt unfair, and my heart went out to him. The Dalai Lama's heart went out to Saddam Hussein, to someone who had brought disaster to millions of people. This highlighted a singular truth about the Dalai Lama. His worldview, the way his mind works, however rational and inspiring they may be, is very different from mine. Saddam Hussein's dictatorship did not come from the sky by itself, the Dalai Lama explained. Saddam Hussein, dictator, invader, bad, 
He ticked off the points on his fingers, his expression grave. But bad things happen because of his army. Without his army, without his weapons, he cannot be that kind of aggressor. These weapons, not produced by Iraqis themselves, but come from the West. Western companies helped to produce the aggressor. They did it, but afterward they blame on that person. Unfair. The Dalai Lama leaned far out of his chair. His voice rose a notch. He was getting worked up about this. So here, that's conventional level. Saddam Hussein, not 100% bad, he said. Then more subtle level. When someone like Bush gets some negative feelings towards Saddam Hussein, then in his eyes, Hussein is something solid, independent, absolute, totally bad. He extended his clenched fist in front of him and glared at it. Similarly, in Saddam Hussein's eyes, and the Dalai Lama started to giggle. He was having trouble finishing what he wanted to say. Bush is something very negative, absolute, independent, embodiment of evil. His words were now punctuated by loud hoots, his shoulders jiggling up and down uncontrollably. The Dalai Lama was getting a kick out of poking fun at the world's most powerful man. When his laughter subsided, he concluded, So, in both cases, strong misunderstanding of reality. This reality is mere mental projection. You are saying Saddam Hussein is not 100% solidly wicked because, for example, he might still be nice to his wife, I asked the Dalai Lama. Oh, yes, yes, the Dalai Lama agreed enthusiastically. He was glad I got the gist of the idea. If circumstances changed, that person can become a very nice person, very possible. Another example. In Bin Laden's eyes, America 100% evil. This ignorance brings disaster. To Bin Laden, the entire West anti-Muslim. America in particular, aggressor of the world. So he decides there's the solid, independent enemy. This is the wrong view of, of reality. What should his view of reality be, I asked him. America is part of Arab. America is part of him, the Dalai Lama replied without hesitation. Interdependent, I said. Yes, interdependent. And not only America. In Western Europe, there's some criticism about Muslim there. But America and Europe, no 100% anti-Muslim. Of course not. So, mental projection again. This is narrow focusing. Mistake. So, interdependent view, wider now, soft. Not that solid thing to hold on to. This perspective reduces strong grasping, strong attachment, because there's no object to be strongly grasped. Our desire, our craving about things and people is reduced. Through decades of sustained practice, the timeless truth of interdependence is seared into the Dalai Lama's consciousness. It has shaped his thoughts, beliefs and behavior. He begins his projects, reacts to world events through the calculus of interdependence. He is not afraid to buck popular opinion. His decisions are not arrived at by the consensus of advisers or by opinion polls. His sympathy, or at least his lack of ill will towards Saddam Hussein, is the result of his special way of seeing, refracted through the prism of interdependence. Now doesn't this explain rather neatly why friend, enemy, stranger, self and other are not inherently existent? 
Just through the realization of interdependence, it becomes impossible to hold such firm, as His Holiness says, 100% views. When we can see that our enemies and ourselves are interdependent, perhaps our mind will soften towards them and we won't want to go to war with them quite so readily. Anyway, we have very apparently in front of us the disaster that the Iraq war turned into. How much misery on both sides was caused by the view that the enemy was independent of America and 100% evil. Bush, Cheney and the rest of the American hawks were so fixed on that view that no warnings about Saddam Hussein's lack of weapons of mass destruction would sway them. Here's the beginning of a September 2007 article by Sidney Blumenthal in the magazine Salon to illustrate the point. On September 18, 2002, CIA Director George Tenet briefed President Bush in the Oval Office on top-secret intelligence that Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction, according to two former senior CIA officers. Bush dismissed as worthless this information from the Iraqi foreign minister, a member of Saddam's inner circle, though it turned out to be accurate in every detail. Tenet never brought it up again. Nor was the intelligence included in the National Intelligence Estimate of October 2002, which stated categorically that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. No one in Congress was aware of the secret intelligence that Saddam Hussein had no weapons of mass destruction, as the House of Representatives and the Senate voted, a week after the submission of the NIE on the authorization for use of military force in Iraq. The information, moreover, was not circulated within the CIA among those agents involved in operations to prove whether Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. On April 23, 2006, CBS's 60 Minutes interviewed Tyler Drumheller, the former CIA chief of clandestine operations for Europe, who disclosed that the agency had received documentary intelligence from Naji Sabri, Saddam's foreign minister, that Saddam did not have weapons of mass destruction. We continued to validate him the whole way through, said Drumheller. The policy was set. The war in Iraq was coming and they were looking for intelligence to fit the policy to justify the policy. Blumenthal continues, Now two former CIA officers have confirmed Drumheller's account to me and provided the background to the story of how the information that might have stopped the invasion of Iraq was twisted in order to justify it. They described what Tenet said to Bush about the lack of weapons of mass destruction and how Bush responded, and noted that Tenet never shared Sabri's intelligence with then-Secretary of State Colin Powell. According to the former officers, the intelligence was also never shared with the senior military planning the invasion, which required U.S. soldiers to receive medical shots against the ill effects of weapons of mass destruction and to wear protective uniforms in the desert. Instead, said the former officials, the information was distorted in a report written to fit the preconception that Saddam did have weapons of mass destruction programs. That false and restructured report was passed to Richard Dearlove, chief of the British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, who briefed Prime Minister Tony Blair on it as validation of the cause for war. Such is the effect of ignorance, and especially willful ignorance, 
particularly about the interdependence that would lead the intelligent to an understanding of the equality of self and others. And so, on to the second to last point of equalizing self with others, and this is that if self and others, friend, enemy and stranger, were inherently existent, then they would never change, but they do. If self, other, friend and so on were inherently existent, they would exist independently from their own side. If they did that, we would not be able to change them. In fact, they wouldn't be able to change themselves. To take a more concrete example, if chocolate ice cream was delicious from its own side, that is, it had the inherent character of being delicious, then everybody who tasted it would think it delicious. But some people don't think the chocolate ice cream is delicious at all. For instance, some of the Tibetan monks I know think ice cream is just weird. Who would want to put something like that into their mouth? This just shows that the deliciousness of chocolate ice cream doesn't come from the ice cream itself, but from the mind of the person licking it. Similarly, someone who, call, who you call your friend isn't a friend from their own side. If this person were really, truly such a friend, they would always be a friend and could never become your enemy or a stranger. But just look at the friends you had when you were much younger. How many of them were still your friends? Maybe one or two, but most would have moved on, and you might even have fallen out with some of them. We can find instances every day of people or institutions or even countries that are friends at one time but later become enemies or vice versa, and it can happen very quickly. It doesn't take much at all to change the one into the other. When I was growing up, America and Russia were such enemies that we were constantly on the brink of a third world war. Then the Soviet Union broke up and Russia and America became, if not heartfelt buddies, at least much more relaxed with each other. Then again, now it seems to be getting a little hot between the two of them again. Impermanence rules, okay. Also, other people will see your friend as their enemy. So who is right? Of course, your friend is neither a friend nor an enemy. It's just the minds of the people viewing him that make the friend or enemy decision. If your friend is really a friend from his own side, everybody who meets him would see him as a friend. But that obviously doesn't happen. Some people like him, others don't. We can say the same thing about self and other. If my conception of myself as inherently existent were the truth, then I couldn't change, and actually I couldn't even become Buddha. Nor could I change my viewpoint to see that others are equal to myself. But because following the example of the Buddha, I can change and see myself and others in different lights, like friends and enemies, self and other do not exist inherently. As His Holiness so succinctly pointed out, we are interdependent. We do not exist as the little bits of independent reality the way that we grasp it ourselves. And interdependence means change. For if one thing transforms, it changes everything else. Now I hope you don't have a headache so far, because the last and ninth point becomes even more subtle and perhaps abstruse. It is that the distinguishing of self and others doesn't inherently exist, because self and other is dependent on the viewpoint one is adopting. This is how Tupton Children tells it, and remember she's talking from the Boys Mountains in Idaho, 
This becomes important as she goes along. She says, From the viewpoint of me, children is self and Bobby is other. From the viewpoint of Bobby, he is self and children is other. It's like this side of the valley and the other side of the valley. When we're standing here, we look at the Ahawi mountain range. That's the other mountain range, isn't it? When we're standing here, it's this mountain. And we look at the Ahawis, it's the other mountain, that mountain. If we go to the Ahawis, then the Ahawis are this mountain. And looking back around, Boys becomes the other mountain. So what this and that mountain are depends on which side of the valley you are hanging out on. They aren't inherently existent. It just depends on where you're standing, which way you look at it. It's the same between Bobby and children. It's just the difference between if you're looking at it from the viewpoint of here or if you're looking at it from the viewpoint of there, whether you call it self or others. So what we call self is merely labeled. It exists by merely being labeled. It's not that there's an inherently existent self, because if there were an inherently existing self, you would all see children as self. Then when you said, I want happiness, then it would all come to me. You all, you all don't see children as self, do you? You see I as self, because you're looking at it from the other point of view. But it just depends on the viewpoint you're looking at, at it from. It's not an inherently existent self and others. And now we can get into all kinds of trouble and make up all sorts of things. For example, that this is my body, so it's right for me to protect my body first, rather than other people's bodies, because this one is my body. You see, there's something me about it. It is my body. And we feel this way, don't we? But then, when we check up, is it my body? Well, the genes come from my mother and father, so part of our body is mom and part of our body is dad. The rest of our body is the result of everything we've eaten since we've been born. That was given to us by all the farmers. Actually, if we look at whose body it is, our body belongs to mom, dad and the farmers. It's only by the process of familiarization that we started to think of this body as me and became so attached to it. Now, if that sounds funny to you, if it's hard imagining that, the psychologists have done lots of studies about babies. Babies really don't know the difference between their own body and their mother's body, or between what's them and what's others. And babies, when they cry, they're frightened by the sound of their own crying. They think that loud wailing is coming from others when it's coming from them. They have an innate sense of self, but it isn't as hard and stiff as our sense of self has become. Adults conceptualize so much more about it. We've been taught that this is our body. We've learned to distinguish our wails from somebody else's wails. But an infant hasn't so much. If we think about that, then we see the role in f familiarization and habituation. When the sperm was still in dad and the egg was still in mom, we didn't have any attachment to that sperm and egg, did we? We didn't look at that genetic material and say, that's mine. It's only after it came together and our consciousness wound up in the midst of it that we started saying that this is mine or got more confused and started saying this is me. It's actually not, is it? A very interesting thing to do when we eat, because we usually space out when we eat food, is to think we eat a piece of broccoli and we think this broccoli is going to become part of my skin or this broccoli is going to become part of my eyeball 
or this broccoli is going to become part of my little toe or whatever it is. Because it is, isn't it? That's where the cell gets the material to keep on surviving. It is from what we eat. When you eat the broccoli, you don't say, this is mine, and this is me, and this is my body. And we're not so attached to the broccoli. Sure, you want a piece of broccoli, take it. We'll even give it off our own plate. But that continuity of that piece of broccoli is my body. But why do I not get so attached to it when it's in the form of broccoli? I don't identify so strongly with it, that's mine. When those atoms and molecules become a part of this body, then I identify it as this is me or this is mine. Why? It doesn't hold together, does it? And here we can see, just through the process of familiarization and habit, that we become so attached to this body and so attached to looking at this from the viewpoint of this body. It's simply because our sense organs are glommed onto this part that we think that there is an eye inside of our head. There's no eye inside of our head. You crack the head open and there's all this grey stuff that we don't even want to look at it so disgusting. There's no person in there. It's just a dependent process that we think there's a person because that's where our sense organs are located. We've just gotten familiarized with that and then grasp onto it being an inherently existent me and an inherently existent mine. But it's just a process of dependency and familiarization. If we think about it this way, it gives us a little bit of space to think that it might be possible to equalize self and others and to care for others' bodies the same way that we care for our own body or to care for others' bodies the same way that we care for our own emotional happiness. Because there's no difference on an ultimate level between self and others. Pain is pain. Eliminate it. There's no big I, the owner of it, and there's no big other there as the owner of it. The sameness on an ultimate level doesn't mean that I'm you and you're me. We have to be very clear about the difference between being on the ultimate level and the conventional level. Because by saying on the ultimate level there's no inherent existent this or that, and there's no inherently existent self, I can take money out of your bank account. If we're all one, why not? Why can't I take your credit card and take the money out of your bank account? We have to discriminate between ultimate and conventional levels. On an ultimate level, there's no inherently existent I or others. On an ultimate level, we don't say we're all one. We just say there are no inherently existent self and others. On a conventional level, just like we label this mountain and that mountain, depending on where we're standing, on a conventional level we can label me and other. We don't say we're all one. But we remember that it's just on a conventional level, and that's just on dependence on the viewpoint from which you're looking at the whole thing. There's no inherently existent I inside this body behind all these sensory organs. There's also no inherently existent self. And similarly, behind the other bodies and sensory organs, there's no inherently existent other. Conventionally, we respect, we respect each other as different beings, and it doesn't mean that when I'm filled with self-hatred, I can take it out on you because we're all one, or that we're all one so you can use my bank account and I use your bank account. It doesn't work that way. Are you clear about this? We always maintain conventional reality, but we just take away the grasping of inherent existence from it, and that gives us a lot of freedom. And that's Tupton Children. And there's something for you to think about for the coming week. Now our time is up and we must part. 
but thank you for staying the distance today. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to your and all sentient beings' enlightenment. Thanks, and I hope you can join us again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.